This is Publishing Talks, a podcast about books and publishing. I'm David Wilk, your host. Today, I'm talking to Angus Ewan Killick. He's the founder and publisher of a new children's book press called Red Comet. But Angus has been in publishing for quite a long time. Not quite as long as me, but almost. And, <laughs> and uh, has done a lot of really interesting things. But we're here to talk somewhat about the present, somewhat about the past, and somewhat about the future. How are you, Angus? I'm very well. Thank you for asking, David. Well, it's really great mm -hmm. to have a chance to talk to you. We have known each other a, quite a long time, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, you've had a, a very busy career in children's book publishing, um, which when we first met, you were not doing. You were actually working for a small British academic publisher. And yeah. I'm kind of curious, what, uh, how did you enter the realm of children's book publishing? What, prompt, mm. you know, what prompted that to get you to where you are today? Yeah, that's a terrific question. Um, yeah, I came over to the United States working with a, an academic publisher, a British publisher, and I was running their sales and marketing office, as you know, because you were our distributor at that point for some of the books. And after several years doing that, I looked to find employment with a US-based publisher. Ironically, I ended up at DK. <laughs> a British, but, <laughs> a Brit at that time, a British publisher. <laughs> right, but they did have a, a fairly decent-sized U.S. operation. And I was hired there partly through contacts and partly because I knew DK and really appreciated that it was definitely at one of the peaks of their times in their in the history of DK they were really exploding in the US and uh, growing fast and I thought I'd love to be a part of that and I was hired to be the um, to be the publicity manager for the children's division but as I'm sure you know most of DK's books back then were nonfiction and while I loved the nonfiction piece while I was there John Sargent who many people know in the publishing industry because he has just finished uh, a very long stint running Macmillan. He came to DK and he hired three very well-known children's book editors, Neil Porter, Melanie Kruper, and Richard Jackson, who has um, passed away in the last couple of years. And they came on board to start a, an author and illustrator driven list. And I was hired over to their team to be their marketing and publicity person. And they introduced me to everyone in the business. They took me to every convention. They pushed me forward. And I met librarians. I met teachers. I met booksellers. And they were so incredibly generous with, um, and the warmth that I received from that community, I just felt I'd found my home. I'd found my home in children's books. And uh, it is an interesting community in the, you know, sub-community of the publishing industry, because once you move into children's books, there's a fairly small circle of people and you meet them again and again and again. And, you know, the good piece of that is they're really great people. So it's always a pleasure. And, you know, I, I did a couple of long stints um, at uh, Disney and at Macmillan. I just finished 11 years at Macmillan. And those were great, great periods for me. Um, 
and I was I, I've had the opportunity to work in so many different departments and oversee different divisions that um, have taught me so much. And one of my favorite things actually at Macmillan was when I was running Kingfisher. I was initially hired by Macmillan in the U in the UK to run the US operation of Kingfisher out of the US Macmillan's offices in the Flatiron. Um, and there I was able to steer the list and I was able to start making acquisitions, which um, as a person who had been mostly in marketing for my career and sales um, was a great um, eye opener for me um, and made it very rewarding, a little bit scary, I have to say, because when you're making those decisions, you're putting your your instincts out there on the line and some things are going to be winners and some things are going to be losers and it's hard to swallow the losers sometimes but you have to uh you have to learn to weather it it's true it becomes you you become responsible i mean i've thought mm -hmm. about this for writers so mm -hmm. much risk of putting yourself into the world i mean people do it all the time but yeah. you know the um yeah, you know, my father was a writer, so I grew up with hearing those moans when the, <laughs> you know, when the reviews came in and they weren't good, or not getting the reviews at all. Um, yeah. You know, all both of those things are just horrible. I think for a writer, it's even more intensely personal, and an illustrator, especially if they get reviews that are not oh, positive. Yeah. Oh yeah, um, it can be crushing. It's it can be a little bit brutal. But if you're surrounded by supportive people, and obviously your publisher would be one of them, and your agent, you know, you can make it through. And also, some of the books that have been panned in the past have gone on to be some of the bestsellers too. Well, that's true. And, you know, it, it's funny. I was just uh, going over a graphic novel for one of my clients, mm -hmm. which is a story of a rock band that had exactly that experience. Their reviews in the press when they first started mm -hmm. called them the worst band in history i mean they got the worst reviews and they're now in the rock and roll hall of fame so i thought you were gonna say and it's die straight <laughs> <laughs> well no it's somebody as famous yeah. as that but the yeah, point yeah. the point is that uh and writers don't realize this and publishers too as you just described you know we're you're we are all in making those decisions, taking risk. Of, mm -hmm. It's not just about whether a book sells or not. It's how is it received. It it is it it does reflect on your um, your aesthetic choice, your ability mm -hmm. to to really recognize talent. And so when it is panned or it's not accepted or the book doesn't sell, it's, yeah, it is. You have to figure out a way of. Um, absorbing that and and letting it uh, either learn something from it or um, realize that some, as you said, some of them are going to win and some of them are going to lose. And the short term sometimes is not always how the, uh, the course of history will treat your books. Yeah. And I, I also would say that um, I've met so many people in publishing who want to turn publishing into a science. They want to analyze the hell out of it and figure out why we aren't just publishing the bestsellers. Why are we wasting our time with all the other books? And, you, <laughs> and it always makes me laugh because if there's one thing I've learned, you cannot predict the way a book is going to perform. You cannot make a book perform in a certain way. You, there's so much um, serendipity, luck, strategy, 
um, so many things that come into play for the success of a book. Uh, it really is a journey that the book has to make. And you, as a publisher, have to sort of pave the road as best you can. Um, but many a time, you will not win. Um, and you have to move on and keep a smile on your face. And it may be something that you have felt instinctively is going to be a, a really terrific, terrific home run. And that just hasn't happened. And there's nothing you can do about it. You just have to keep publishing and keep trusting your instincts and doing the best job you can. Yeah, I think that's mm -hmm. true. I, I also do think, though, uh, in, in, in nonfiction, you have mm -hmm. more of an opportunity to be and I don't want to say purely scientific, but to apply scientific principles, mm -hmm. you can do market research. You can learn where there are opportunities, a need that exists that isn't being filled or some territory that was published well in the past, but hasn't right. been modernized. I mean, there are things. Yeah. That or an updated volume of something that, you know, people are hungry to, to get the latest, um, on or something like that, but you're quite right. With something creative, though, yeah. um, which so much of children's publishing is, yeah. um, it's really difficult to predict how those books are going to be received, and you just have to make those books the best books you possibly can. Now, one thing I've I've thought about with children's books, and mm -hmm. you know, I'm not a specialist. I'm, you know, the in a certain way, a, you know, very much a generalist. So I know a lot, a little about a lot of things, which makes me really dangerous. Um, and one of the, I it feels like with children's books, one of the difficulties that you face in publishing new books, as compared to adult uh, books, is that there are so many classics in children's literature that are so well loved and so powerful in the marketplace that they take up a certain amount of space um, that makes it harder to to bring newer books into the into the pantheon if you will uh, yeah do you i hear what you're saying but i would say that the classics sort of like have their own channel over here so to speak and there is an incredible hunger a need for new, fresh children's books all the time. And what will happen is, you know, the, the output from the publishers is to produce these new books. And there's the gatekeepers are really like looking for what's new and getting excited about it. The latest illustrator, the latest, you know, novel. Um, and uh, so you work with those people on the front end with all the new books. And then some of them travel over to that that aisle, that channel of classics um, after a few years. And that's what you hope for, because the other difference between a lot of the adult publishing and the children's publishing um, business is that children's tends to have a much longer tail. Right. Those books will last in the market a lot longer. And they may not be selling a lot of copies, but they just keep going and they have their fans and you continue to sell them. Um, and there's lots of subsidiary rights as well that you can get out of a children's book that you maybe you can't out of an adult book um and so we're always looking for that we're always looking for can we do an audio can we do a video can we can we license it you know to overseas publishers in different languages can so there's there's a, a raft of other opportunities um with children's books that um maybe aren't quite 
it's not the same business model with adult. Right. Well, now is it? Do you think that with uh, foreign rights, because translation mm-hmm. is easier with children, you have fewer words to translate? <laughs> is, is that is that part of how? And plus, the art is you know you already have the files made, so mm-hmm. it's very easy to turn files over to a a, a publisher in a different country. Yeah. Right. Is that is, but on the other hand, do you also run into this sort of cultural barriers where people in some countries will say, "Well, that's an American style of art"? Oh, or, absolutely. Yeah. So what you'll notice with my first list is they are actually all from foreign publishers. I have two from two books come from Italian publishers and two from French, um, and the one of the reasons I did this was because it's a quick way for me to get a list together. Um, I'm not starting those books from scratch with an author and an illustrator and the illustrators having to, you know, do their work. And that can take many, many months and uh, if not years. Um, And the other thing is I'm very passionate about books in translation. And I think there are some incredible uh, opportunities and books being published overseas that deserve an English audience. Um, and then, you know, I have a couple of other things in my back pocket. I used to live in Italy, so I have a bit of an affinity with Italian and Italian publishers. Uh, and uh, they have a very rich uh, tradition of children's publishing. There are a lot of independent children's publishers in France and in Italy. Um, but I looked at an awful lot of books. Uh, and there is an aesthetic, and there is an aesthetic that doesn't travel. Um, and if you try to make it travel, uh, it's, it's not going to work. So I was very careful in my selection of books because I felt like the art was actually going to succeed uh, in an English market in, in ways that some of the other books I looked at. I may have loved them, but I just couldn't publish them because I just don't think there's an audience for them. I think it goes in all directions. Mm. So there are probably are European uh, aesthetics that will work within Europe mm-hmm that wouldn't come here in American aesthetics that wouldn't work in Europe. Well, that but, point, David, there's a lot of British publishers who won't publish American books because they're too American in their aesthetic and vice versa. Oh yeah. Um, and it's incredible because it's quite subtle and, and often non, not necessarily discernible to the, to the lay person, but, um, publishers are very firm about oh no no i couldn't take that book it's too too british <laughs> well and do, but do you here's a question that you mm. you had mentioned gatekeepers before and i've always also thought about this too how do you feel that the that those decisions that publishers make where they're kind of internalizing um the what the the audience wants are they accurate you know in other words if you tried it out with a a librarian or a, a children's uh, or a teacher or or even a group of parents um, would they say oh no that actually is okay you know I don't mind right. the Britishness of that so I won't lie to you one of the books on my list and I won't tell you which one I did show to a very prominent children's bookseller because I was concerned uh, whether there was a market for it and whether it would be embraced and I got a very positive response from her um, and uh, it was one of the one of the factors that helped me decide to acquire the book. Um, but yeah, I'm not publishing by committee. I'm not. I'm I'm publishing through you know instinct, passion, falling in love with something, um, 
and uh, knowing the market. I mean, it's really important you know the market, um, that you know what's out there, you know what's going on, you know the styles that people are uh, are gravitating towards. Um, and, you know, I, I do love beautiful storytelling. So um, the strength of the storytelling is really important as well, not just the illustrations. So does mm. not having physical trade shows impact your ability to maintain that awareness? Such a great question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would say, interestingly enough, I spend a lot of time in the bookstore now that it's open. The one down the street here uh, is called Books of Magic. Um, I also, you know, my my radar is up all the time. I'm, I'm on different blogs and review sources. I'm looking you know, on different websites. I'm keeping abreast of everything that's going on. I, you know, I have access to Edelweiss, which is the bookseller platform that showcases all the books. There are many, many um, books that publishers put up there and I can actually read the whole book. Um, So I feel like, you know, I am pretty up to date despite what's going on. Now that said, would I have liked to go to Bologna and acquire my books? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The Bologna Book Fair is such an important fair for children's books. But um, I actually came up with another strategy because I didn't, I didn't actually decide to start a publishing company um, until August of last year. And uh, I reached out to the Bologna Book Fair organizers and asked them if they would give me access to the Global Rights Exchange which is a website for buyers and sellers of children's books. And uh, when you have access, you can go in and you can um, look at the books that they are um, selling rights to. And I spent many hours um, poring over books and asking for PDFs from publishers in order to track down um, these titles. Yeah. Yeah. No. So this sort of relates, I think, to something that comes up for me often. You know, I work with lots of different kinds of clients, publishers, authors, and frequently, and I'm sure this is true for almost everyone in publishing, when someone says, I've written a children's book, Mm. the the very first thing I do is cringe and get really nervous Mm -hmm. um, because so often they're not they don't know enough about children's books. They I might think, have been there. yeah, they think, yeah, you <laughs> might have been there a few times. But, uh, <laughs> um, but my, I, it's yeah. you know, it sort of feels like actually um, that a way of helping an author yeah. or an illustrator or someone who's done both, because there are people who are capable of yeah. visual storytelling, uh, and sometimes people are good with words, not good with art, sometimes good with art, not with words. But it would make, I mean, mm-hmm. I always advise people, if you're going to enter a new business, learn the business. So if you're going to write a children's book, it does make sense to spend some time reading a lot of children's books, which ought ought to be fairly... Um, Absolutely in, intuitive. And you are completely right in what you say, and I, you know, I was sort of making a nod to it earlier in the conversation about familiarizing you, familiarizing yourself with the market. Um, people do think generally that they can write a children's book because it's a short form, um, so in inverted commas, it's easy. But I actually think the art of writing a picture book is more, way more difficult than most people think. Um, you know, it because 
it's a short form. It's like writing poetry. You actually have to do so much more with so many fewer words. Um, picture books need to have, you know, drama, denouement, resolution, you know, uh, character development. Your characters have to be different at the end than they were at the beginning. And what do you have, 32 pages? Um, so it, it's, it really is an art. It's a real skill. Uh, that's a reason after 30 years in this business, I haven't written a single picture book. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I, I completely understand. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's, I have to confess that I've written two, mm -hmm. um, uh, one of which I will, I doubt it will ever work. It's just, it's, you know what I mean? It, you think, well, this is a really great idea and you write it I and tried. then I try. Yeah. And then you show it to people and they say, this is awful. You know, you don't, I don't even understand what you're trying to say. Yeah. So that said, that said, all four of these books, I have had an editorial vision for, and I have changed to make them meet that expectation that I've come up with. When I acquired each of those books, I knew where I was going with each of these books to make them right in English for this market. So, oh, no, that's a good, yeah, that's a good point. So when you acquire a book from another country, you have more artistic control than I think I realized. Yes. The wonderful thing is the uh, European publishers of these books immediately understand that in order for this to be, to work in English, the, the publisher who publishes in English has to have some creative freedom to make it right for their market. So it could be changing the title, changing the characters' names, tweaking the text, tweaking the art, okay? We did, all, we did most of those things on these books, actually. Um, we did, yes. Uh, rewriting some of the text. You usually get a rough translation, and then you have to go in and... Um, decide if you need to bring an author in to help you with it, which I did with one of them, uh, or if you're going to, going to work on it yourself because you know, you know where you want this text to be. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's actually a lot of editorial uh, in these books that is sort of a little bit secretly hidden behind the scenes. I just pulled back the curtain. Oops. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> now every, everyone will know. <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, it makes me incredibly proud of them um, because I sort of empowered myself to do this because that was the only way I was going to get the books to market. Yeah. And, and so given the current circumstances, which of course uh, may or may, you know, I think there are some of the changes in the book industry and the world at large that will survive and, 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 you know, become our new normal. I actually just read, of course, things are all changing all the time, but, um, you know, the kind of latest thinking about, um, the pandemic is that it isn't going away and that we will still be, um, operating in a kind of, uh, yeah. you know, a different universe for quite some time, which could have an effect on, you as a publisher thinking about how uh, how do you get books into bookstores? How do you um, how do people find books? You know, for yeah. at this time. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I've oh, sorry, you no, want to finish the question? But no, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm you know, um, I fully embraced the digital world for all its pluses and minuses. <laughs> you know, including. Um, social media marketing, which I think is incredibly powerful. Um, uh, I truly believe uh, in word of mouth. Word of mouth is still 
probably one of the best ways to sell books. And in the children's arena, um, it is an incredibly powerful tool as well. So once you get people on your side, you get them talking about those books, um, people sit up and listen and pay attention and then start wondering whether they've missed something. <laughs> fear of missing out, fear of missing comments. <laughs> um, so I, I am ready to sort of pull, marshal all the possible forces that we have at our fingertips to push these books forwards and, and promote them um, to the intended audience and, and compete with everyone else. I mean, the other thing about social media marketing uh, is it's a fairly level playing field for everybody in the industry. So whether you're going up against Random House or, you know, a small independent publisher, you can pretty much do the same things for very little money um, if you have skillful people at the helm helping you, helping you get the word out, helping get exposure for the titles. Um, all of the authors and illustrators that I'm working with are hungry to get out there and promote those books over social media because they all live abroad. Um, so I think I feel very positive about it. I guess that's what I would say. Yeah. Well, I think it is true that the social media, you, you know, we're sort of all equal in the eyes of the, the reader when you're, uh, you know, when you're online, essentially, uh, you have the same opportunity as anybody else does. I think mm -hmm. you're right. But it's still difficult because mm -hmm. of the sheer amount of noise. Um, you know, you're creating signal, and for you, you have to find ways of yeah. getting that out to people. So, which of, I mean, are you, which of the, if you want to talk about this, it may be if you want to keep things secret, that's fine. But which of the kind of social media do you feel are best for children's books as? Uh, you know, in the, in, in the, um, in the, yeah. So I have, um, I'm very lucky because I, I mentioned to you before we started the recording that, um, I have a raft of people who are helping me launch Red Comet Press. Uh, and that includes someone who used to work at a big social media marketing firm and she's volunteering. <laughs> God bless her. Um, and she is bringing all of her smarts to bear, uh, on, uh, putting us out there in the social media. And she has chosen Facebook, I think is sort of like the masthead of it all, um, but also uh, Instagram and uh, Twitter, which I have to say, I'll do my part, but I'm not very good on any of it. <laughs> um, but she completely understands how to leverage those um those channels for promoting children's books. And there's a huge audience out there of people connected with each other. Um, and uh, I think it's just a matter of um, waving these books in front of people's faces and getting them to sort of like them or write about them. Um, and that's how you sort of build your audience and followers. Do you feel also that the uh, the kind of book bloggers, the parenting um, community, the the homeschooling people, the younger parents, yes. um, also, you know, they it's may not not all be on Facebook, but it might be um, more through blogs and yeah. you know recommendations from friends. Absolutely. So I've hired Blue Slip Media out of San Diego, and they are um, children's publishing marketing publicity veterans. Um, and they are—they have a focus on the bloggers uh, very much so, and getting them to write about the books and include them in their roundups and 
um, and feature them wherever possible and do giveaways. That's the other thing we do. Ah, yes. Yeah. Well, and Goodreads, I think, is still mm-hmm. valuable for that. Um, for sure. And But it seems like, you know, social media, one thing is true is that it changes fairly rapidly. You know, that mm-hmm. like yeah, younger kids are actually not on Facebook. It's parents who are. Right. Um, but the ch- they have the money. <laughs> well, right. Well, they're buying the books, and you know, in exactly. the way ch- children's books and the, and the librarians are, and the right. the teachers are. So, yeah, right. Um, you, you go where the money is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course, I care whether the kids like the books too. <laughs> well, but no, the kids have yeah. to like them and then tell their parents, "I want yeah. you to buy this book for me." Exactly. Right. Yeah. And then you know, there's a there's all these awards you can apply for as well, or send the books right. for. Um, so there are many vehicles to to get the word out for sure that we will uh, we will employ. Mm-hmm. Now it is a truism of uh, mm-hmm. children's publishing that digital um, presentation, you know, digital books don't sell very well uh, in the transactional side. Uh, Correct. You know, where uh, on uh, Kindle or iPad. You know, people are not yeah. reading that many books that they buy. Until you get to your teens, and then the teen novels can sell really, really right. well. But you're quite right. The illustrated books, it's a very small market digitally. Right, mm-hmm. except for the uh, subscription <laughs> side. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So are you going to participate in the various I, uh, platforms that are doing that? I do intend to, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be interesting. I'm, I'm just, I'm very curious to see how children who were raised now this will be children who are still in their early ages you know just beginning to read possibly mm-hmm. the kids you know for whom the pandemic year looms larger because they're maybe they're only six years old that means one whole one sixth of their lives they've been in, oh my gosh in this, what a thought i know yeah. but i want to see what mm-hmm. happens with them in terms of mm-hmm. digital consumption of of, of media yeah. because they are more likely to mm-hmm. have had this period of time where everything mm-hmm. is digital so one of my clients because i have consultancy clients is a company called Vooks. have you seen Vooks? i have yeah oh, yeah so Vooks.com is a subscription channel where they take uh, children's picture books and they turn them into animated, narrated with music um, and um, uh, sound effects. Uh, they turn them into videos and the Vooks channel is doing incredibly well. Um, and uh, you, two of my books are already going to be made into Vooks videos, which I'm very excited about. They're partnering with publishers to help them promote the books. Um, and uh, it, yeah, I think one of the reasons they've uh, got such a huge subscriber base, I think they're up to 1.3 million subscribers, is because um, because of the pandemic and because of everybody being locked down and parents wanting a safe space for kids to consume something that they know is kind of good for them, in inverted commas, right. uh, wholesome. So, yeah. yeah I think uh, some of those parental rules about screen time have... <laughs> been thrown out they're gone (laughs) (laughs) and uh you know they spend so much time online now even if they're not my 14 year old does six hours of school and then he's online for the rest of the day with his friends so it's yeah and you just have to accept it for what it is 
until we can all get out and about again. <laughs> yeah, but I, but some of this will. I'm I'm sure people want to go outside. It's not like they're going to stay home, you know, huddled over an iPad instead right. of going outside to play baseball or something. But it, you know, I think this will mm. change the pattern of uh, digital media consumption forever. Right, because they've grown up with it in yeah. a way that we never did. We yeah. never had anything like this when we were growing up. So, And today you have kids, you know, like my children, who are now getting up there in age, but who, you know, they grew up with video games. Yeah. Uh, they grew up with uh, computers. They grew up with phones. So they have a different uh, perspective. Uh, it doesn't mean they're all, you know, no one reads books or everybody feels like, you know, they're all digital natives, but because there's a lot of... Uh, uh, they have a different balance in yeah, their life. Yeah, yeah, but they have a certain, um, I will say, je ne sais quoi, um, mm -hmm. feeling about that that is really, you know, and obviously I think sociologists and people like that are studying this and marketers are studying it like crazy okay. all the time trying to figure out how will they be different, you know, when it comes time for them to join the marketplace at 18, uh, they start buying things, or maybe it's 14 now when they start buying a lot of things themselves. Um, you know, what are they going to be like as consumers? I think this yeah. is an open question. It certainly is. Yeah. So mm. in terms of developing your list, now, yeah. are you going to, do you sort of plan to keep Red Comet a certain size and continue with your other work or do you uh, just want to see how it goes for a while i do actually i mean it first of all it takes about 18 months as you probably know to start a publishing company and see any income uh, so <laughs> so i am crazy um you know all i'm doing is writing checks at the moment uh and then once my distributor has started selling books i won't see any money after their three months <laughs> right before they pay me. Um, but uh, once it gets up and running, and um, I, I want to be able to be involved in each of the books. Uh, and so a list that is bigger than five or six books a season is just going to be too many. In order for me to really do right by each of these projects, um, I, you know, I need to keep the list fairly small. Um, so I, that is my vision to hopefully, if these books backlist, then we will have backlist income alongside the frontlist publishing. Um, it may take several years for us to get to that place. Um, and I like the balance of, you know, having consultancy work over here and my publishing company over here. Um, and I think it's a realistic sort of business plan going forward. I think it, well, no, I think it makes mm -hmm. sense because, mm -hmm. um, you know, we know how long, how not only how long it takes to, make income, but how hard it is to make a profit in publishing. Right. And it does yeah. take a while. I think the backlist is uh, still the driver. Um, mm. and, but also as, you know, thinking about the scale, um, one lesson learned from publishers like Workman or Sourcebooks is this idea that uh, publishing a relatively small number of books allows you to focus on the mm -hmm. books and not turn into an assembly line or or mm -hmm. drop the ball because you know you have another book coming yeah. and you can't finish the work on the first one so i think that's I've, it's smart. i've always sort of been somewhat connected to that type of publishing anyway um obviously kingfisher is a small boutique list macmillan is a collection of boutique imprints all with a specialization or a focus um hyperion 
was very much a boutique publisher uh, and an incredibly successful one. I mean, a lot of amazing children's book um, creators came out of Hyperion and the list was relatively small. Um, so I, I do philosophically gravitate towards that type of business. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that's where I see myself in 10 years. <laughs> Well, that's good. Well, so by then, by then, you'll have a hundred titles if you publish exactly. So, so one thing I wanted to th mm. just—I don't. If this is harder to talk about, but it's the idea of which you alluded to—the kind of aesthetic of art. Um, it not only is different from country to country, but it evolves within the. Let's say we focus on America. The the art style mm. of books. Uh, if you looked at books published 30 years ago, completely different. But even if you looked at books published a few years ago, um, art style does evolve, does change, um, reflecting, you know, whether it's aesthetics. I, it's hard to figure that out, you know, whether the artists are leading or whether the market is pushing. Um, but it's interesting to think about um, how, what are the influences that, are coming to bear on the art that go goes into children's books. Wow, that's a really difficult question <laughs> um, because by its inherent nature, it's very subjective as well. What you like and what you don't like, um, and uh, I, you, you know, there's different different types of storytelling in the art as well, which um, which comes into play. Um, so, for example, we have this book, Cat and Dog, which only has 32 words because it is a, an opposites book and each spread has one word and then it's opposite. Um, and you think, huh, how do you make a story out of that? But once you look at the art that the illustrator has created, you realize that he has not only structured delivery of those words in a very clever sequence, but also the illustrations are telling you an incredible amount of storytelling. And not only has he built in this incredible amount of storytelling, but he's also built in humor too. So it's quite genius. Um, and, you know, I'm hoping people appreciate it for the multi-level storytelling that you see in what appears to be an incredibly simple book. Um, but that's talking about a specific book and your question was more about art styles uh, and the evolution there. And I don't know that I can predict what thing, what, picture books are going to look like in 10 years time, um, what the popular books are going to be. I think what happens um, every year, there are a few new illustrators that people get very excited about. And then you get, um, you get a number of other illustrators who are, are in the same style coming along and um, catching that wave, so to speak. Um, and then there are art styles. We have this book, Before We Sleep, which has a very, very classic feel to it. Um, and, uh, you know, it feels like it could have been published 10 years ago and maybe it, it would still be published if it was new in 10 years time. Do you think that, um, cultural change will, um, and that is in this, the sense that, you know, it, I have a strong feeling that, um, children's book publishing in particular will be embracing multiculturalism, cross-culturalism, you know, the openness to different versions of reality, literally, um, not just from a uh, cultural perspective, yeah. but from, you know, kind of various different forms of... Well, here's, here's, that's a very interesting comment, and I was actually thinking of 
going that direction with my comments, my response, um, because there is a very strong diversity lens on children's books right now. Um, the children's book and in publishing industry has come under a lot of criticism for being too white and not representing multicultural books or own voices books enough, not having enough um, people in publishing of color, uh, not having enough creators of color represented. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I am delighted to be part of that um, initiative. Uh, I've always been very committed to diversity and inclusion. I actually served five years on the council at Macmillan um, leading that initiative. Uh, and uh, certainly you'll see in my future publishing, there's some diversity coming that I'm very excited about. Yeah, I think that um, it, it's obviously it's a huge issue for um, mm -hmm. at present, but I don't think it's, I don't see it as, um, you know, in publishing, there are fads, you know, we see that all the time that um, if you look back over 50 years, you'll see there were, um, you know, rises and ebbs and, and flows in different kinds of publishing. But I don't, I think this is much more of a significant totally right. change that has to be. Um, well, diversity is, is, um, is something that we have to work on all our lives because it's a journey and, and you never come to the end of the road representing diversity in culture. It's because the culture is changing. What we're doing is playing a catch up game and we are way, way, way behind where we need to be. So we have to work extra hard to move forward. But it's also exciting because there oh, yeah. are so many um, new people to be heard from, mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that you, you can provide voice to um, uh, stories that would not have been heard in any other way. So yeah, totally agree. Mm -hmm. And enable, you know, you have this sort of feeling that it, that is a, that ha that it's um, a cumulative effect over time that the more diverse publishing is, the more diverse publishing will become. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that is, I think that's really important. Yeah. Well, strive for if, <laughs> if, if you had, if, well, I don't know, like I'm, I'm sort of struggling with the last thing I wanted to ask you is kind of it. Do you have a publisher in that you feel is your hero or heroine, you know, or whatever, somebody who that you really look at as the model of a great publisher that you would not necessarily want to emulate because I don't think it's about trying right. to copy them, but to just admire and learn from is if there is anyone. Well, that's a wonderful question. And I'm not going to say there's a hero. Uh, I'm going to say that um, the journey so far um, that I have taken uh, has included some people who have supported me. Um, and and it means a lot to me that um, I've talked to them and been connected with them and they've given me their support. So um, Claudia Bedrick is the publisher of Enchanted Lion. And um, interestingly enough, her company is about a five minute bike ride from my house here in Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, and I love the work she's doing. Um, she publishes great books, not only in translation, but also she's doing some books with uh, American um, creators. Uh, so I have huge admiration for her for that. Uh, and she's been very, very supportive and helpful. Um, and then Frisch, 
Christopher Franceschelli, who is an old colleague from when I was at Penguin. Um, he has his imprint, Handprint, uh, and he, he has helped me too, and we've compared notes, and I give him a call every now and again when I get stuck on something, uh, and I love the publishing that he does. But neither Claudia nor Christopher are publishing the types of books that I'm publishing. We all have our own little sensibility and taste, and that's what's so great about it. We're not really competing. We're more colleagues in that respect. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we'd name those two. Um, there's also Catherine Otoshi has Kato Books. Um, she publishes books that she creates. She's out in Northern California. Um, and I have really enjoyed talking to her and getting the lowdown on the business from her point of view too. Oh, that's good. Well, that's actually, that, I didn't know about her. So that gives me mm -hmm. someone to look at and look up. So that was sort of where I wanted to, you know, I wanted to mm -hmm. see if you, there were people out there doing stuff that you really there thought. There are many more. Yeah. I mean, Arthur Levine has just started Levine Carrito. Um, you know, he left Scholastic and his first list was fall 2020, auspicious time to launch a list. But he has won many awards with the books that he's published, including the Prince Award for an autobiographical novel by Daniel Nayeri. Fantastic book. So, I mean, he's, he's doing amazing work. But we're all colleagues in this. And that's what's interesting about the children's book business. We're colleagues more than competitors. Uh, so many times you've had to work with people in other publishing houses because we share the same authors or the same illustrators. And the, the reason we do that is because we're, we're there to do the best thing by the authors and illustrators, not compete with it, each other because we have different books. Um, so I think that's a very special aspect of children's book publishing. It is true. It, it noticeably a very uh, communal um, mm. business with a lot of uh, commitment to value and a commitment to values. Yeah. So I think that, well, and that's what attracts people to publishing in the first place, yeah. I think, but especially yeah. to children's books. It's, mm. it's something that um, gives you an opportunity to make a difference. Yeah. That's what we're here to do. <laughs> well, I, I certainly, I certainly wish you luck in what you're doing because it's going to be Thank really. You. I know it'll be fun, but I think it'll be really rewarding too. And I'm looking forward to seeing your books. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, uh, Angus, for talking to me here. This has been Publishing Talks, a podcast about books and the publishing industry. I'm David Wilk. I've been talking to Angus Ewan Killick of Red Comet Press, among many other things. <laughs> <laughs>